Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. Today is episode 31. It's titled, The Cost of Following Jesus. Now, if you've heard this podcast already and you tried to revisit it and it sounds different, it's because I'm revising it. And the reason for that is because I listened to it probably about 10 times and there was some wording I wasn't satisfied with. So if I miss information that I had in it before, please forgive me. I'm sure we'll cover it in another podcast, but I wasn't satisfied with my wording. And the reason for that is because the cost of following Jesus is arguably the most important topic to discuss and the way it's been perverted in the world. It frustrates me to the point of, I have a hard time keeping my thoughts together when I visit this topic. So I want to redo it the right way today. So bear with me. Today is hands down, probably one of the toughest set of verses. I think there's many of them, but this falls under that category. When I first read them, I asked myself, how many people, if they heard a Christian say those things, would in fact consider that person not only rude and lacking compassion, but maybe even not a Christian at all? As we go through these verses, I want you to consider what your reaction would be if a preacher, pastor, priest, or bishop said the same things that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 through 22 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders. That's interesting. I want to stop there. People don't understand that there are Greek military terms in the Bible, and it's centered around lordship and submission, and that's why we see Jesus Christ giving orders, because he's our Lord, and he's in a position over us, right? So let's keep pushing. Interesting thing to note, and it's important. He was giving orders to tell people to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now that's spicy, that last part. That's spicy, and that's a hard thing to hear. But before we talk about that, let's talk about the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. Jesus didn't tell the man, no, you can't follow me. But he told him the truth without painting a glamorized version of what it was like to follow him. This is the opposite of techniques used by many evangelicals today. But Jesus wanted the man to know what it would really be like. So this commentary points at, when 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 they're talking about glamorized versions of following Christ by certain evangelicals today, one way of articulating it is the warm and fuzzy prosperity gospel, which means it teaches basically being a Christian is about what God is doing for you rather than what you are doing for God. It's narcissism, really. So to read the Bible and think it's about receiving, that's not what service service is. That's not what it means to follow Christ because we're to serve him the way he served the Father. And it's vital for us to keep that in the forefront of our mind. It's not what we receive. And that's why Christ says it's better to, it might have been Paul, forgive me, but it's in the Bible for sure. It's better to give than to receive. Our goal as Christians is to give our lives to Christ. It's not to receive blessings from God. He's already offered salvation. And if he never blesses us another day in our life, salvation and eternal life is sufficient. Now this warm and fuzzy prosperity gospel, that it's, I've only seen it in what's classified as evangelical Protestant circles. Now, I'm not saying that all evangelical circles don't preach the gospel correctly, but just listen to Vody Bauckham, for example, and him talking about Joel Osteen, old smiling Joel. We don't have to tell people they're bad. They already know they're bad. 
we need to build people up. And it's, it's a, it's a, you're supposed to build them up in the ways of the Lord. You're not supposed to build them up in the face of their sin and pathology. That's not the way it goes. Now, that false gospel, they'll tell you that the sinner's prayer is how you make your way to heaven. There's no biblical evidence for that. So if you hear people at the end of a sermon saying, if you want to come give your life to the Lord, I appreciate the intentions behind it, but it's not the right approach. You know, and Paul Washer, he's another good pastor. He talks about the warnings of walking up to a sinner, let's say, or someone who hasn't accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and saying, Jesus loves you. Really? He does? Because I love me too. And Jesus has a plan for your life. Really? I have a plan for my life too. And so the point Paul Washer was making is how dangerous approaches can be if they aren't articulated properly. And so it really needs to be, can I talk to you about Jesus Christ? That's what our approach needs to be. That whole Jesus loves me, this I know, is something we teach children. And then we transition them at some point in teaching them how to love Jesus Christ or abide in his love. So following Jesus requires us to be reborn. That's the first step. It's to update our worldview, to update our minds. Repentance is the first step because we have to recognize that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get salvation without him. And this new way of perceiving the world and this path of righteousness is not natural. In fact, it goes against our very nature, which is sinful. The cost of following Jesus requires us to radically orient, reorient rather, our heart, mind, and soul towards the direction of holiness and righteousness. Now let's talk about the next tough thing Christ said. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. When Christ said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead, Jesus pressed to the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligations for that matter must not be put ahead of following Jesus. Following Jesus must come first. Now, this is a brutal reality for us to keep in the forefront of our minds, and I think it'd be fitting to remind everyone, again, the greatest commandment is to love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. And I've heard people speak about the second commandment as if it's the greatest. It's like there's not a good differentiation, in my experience, between the first commandment, rule number one, that all the law and prophets hang from, and then the second command, which the rest of the law and prophets hang on. And there's a difference, right, between loving others as a generality, let's say, and there's a pitfall in that because it's not we're not just supposed to love others. We're supposed to love others as we love ourselves. But the greatest commandment is to love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. And that's to be obedient to Scripture. And he tells us that in the Gospel of John, how to abide in his love. And to abide in his love is to obey the Ten Commandments and to obey his word, which is Scripture. Now, the scholars have came to the conclusion that the laws that we are to keep are based on all of the instruction in the New Testament in relationship to the Old Testament. So the way the scholars will say is obey the Ten Commandments, obey the New Testament in relationship to the Old Testament. Now the reason we have to add, add that caveat in the end is because there's 613 Mosaic laws. And there's four, I think there's four classifications of the laws, or maybe five. If there's five, forgive me, but the four I remember are judicial laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and moral and ethical laws. So. An example of the judicial laws would be putting people to death for certain crimes. That's condemnation. And the 
New Testament says we aren't allowed to do that. So that was something exclusive for ancient Hebrew culture only. And if anyone wants to get bent out of shape about that, we have death sentences in our judicial system in the United States of America. So before you criticize God for having death sentences for certain things in, in the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew culture, you should maybe evaluate our judicial system and start there um, and work work that contradiction out because there are certain things that are wicked and are deserving of death according to human beings. So don't get hung up on the old judicial laws. The next would be ceremonial laws. Those are all the ones that Jesus fulfilled that, according to the scholars, were not, were not under the ceremonial Mosaic laws anymore. And then you've got the civil laws. An example of that would be Jubilee. So Jubilee, if I remember correctly, is every seven years all debts will be forgiven. Now, do I want to be under that law in the United States of America? Absolutely. That would be fantastic. But we aren't under that anymore. However, we are under the last category, which are the moral and ethical laws, and that's everything in the New Testament, and any time the New Testament points to the Old Testament for more instruction. So, that's what it means to abide in His love, and love God first with all our heart, mind, and soul is to abide in His love the way He instructs us to in the Gospel of John. Now, regarding the other scribe, which is called a disciple, so it doesn't matter if you call him a scribe or a disciple in the context of these verses, because it means the same thing. They're not talking about the apostles. That's according to the commentary, by the way. Now, regarding the death of his family member, I want to put yourself in the disciple's shoes, or scribe number two in these verses. Imagine your father just died, and you asked your spiritual leader, priest, pastor, minister, teacher... Uh, bishop, whatever the case may be, and you ask them if you could go bury your father or maybe even be in a support system for your family. And let's say there was a mission trip you guys were preparing for when this event popped up, and the response you got from your, your leader was, follow me and leave the dead bury their, to bury their own dead. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. The person's going to say, you're heartless, you lack compassion, those aren't the fruits of the Spirit. Um, they, they'll probably even say, we're not going to this church anymore. You're not a Christian. This is not what Jesus would do, even though it's exactly what Jesus would do. Now, I'm not saying use that discretion in all situations, but you have to understand that priority number one is Jesus Christ, not our family, period. And then it's the same thing with, with marriages. It is Jesus first, your spouse second, your children third, that, that period. If you're, if you are a husband or, or let me put it this way. If you're a husband and you love your wife more than you love Jesus, you're sinning. Because that's not what the Bible commands us to do. If you're a wife and you love Jesus, or I should say you love your husband more than Jesus, you're wrong. Right? If you're a wife that loves her children more than her husband, you're wrong. If you're a husband that loves your children more than your wife, you are wrong. If you're a grandparent that loves your grandchildren more than your wife, you're wrong. So it's God first, spouse second, children third. The marriage is more important than the children, period, because that the Bible says so. That's our priority in the whole union of marriage is our spouse. The Let's keep talking about commentaries. The following information was taken from David Guzik's commentary. Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples unlike many modern evangelists. Excuse me. He was interested more in quality rather than quantity. Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession. So this commentary makes another brilliant point that fits the topic of following Jesus perfectly. 
we need to understand that when we decide to be a Christian, we're actually commissioning in the Lord's army. We are, this is not powder puff football. This is not f- rec ball, fall ball, baseball in third grade. This is serious business. We're commissioning in the Lord's army. We are to be soldiers waging war against the unseen spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Our battle is not against the flesh. However, there may be times where we are required to defend ourselves and others we love who cannot defend themselves. Nothing has been more harmful to Christianity than people thinking that those who profess Christ as Lord have actually given their lives to Christ. It's not what that means. Just because you profess something doesn't mean you've made a commitment to love God first with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's not the profession that matters. It's rather the action taken in relationship to the profession that Christ is Lord. So it's, it's the action and obedience behind that profession that matters, not the profession itself. And we, we must understand the pitfalls of the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And this reminds me of, I see in the false gospels, personally, what I see is a modern-day Christian Pharisee. And the reason I say that is not because those that are perverting the gospel are imposing all 613 Mosaic laws on people. That's not at all what they're doing. I'm referring to the picking and choosing what to follow out of the New Testament or to, or to teach biblical heresy which is anything that violates scripture. And if you remember, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, a lot of them thought they were holy just because they they were hearers of scripture and they weren't actually doers. And Paul talks about this, that it's not the people who hear that are justified, it's the doers that are justified. And that's why James also says in chapter 1, verse 22, don't be hearers only, be do- deceiving yourselves. He says, be doers of the word, which is scripture. And again, the scholars have concluded, and I agree wholeheartedly, that we should obey all of the New Testament in relationship to the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, because that's how we abide in Christ's love. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees, again, thought that it was the hearing or just they received the seed of Moses that made them holy rather than the obedience. And that couldn't be the case. We can't pick and choose what to obey in the New Testament. We can't. And that's what I think modern day a Christian Pharisee is as a part of this false gospel. They'll say things like love covers a multitude of sins without fully understanding what love, grace, and the path to righteousness that we're called to have in Christ. It's a love covers a multitude of sins isn't consent to sin. It is an abstraction of the underlying principles within repentance. And we'll talk about that when we get to those verses, but it's there's so much perverted. There's so much perverted. So, again, we need to abide in God's love and not just be hearers only, which is what the Pharisees were. And we can't sit there and declare Christ as Lord and declare the Bible as holy and then not be doers of the words. That's hypocrisy, and that's why Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrisy, or excuse me, hypocrites. Now, I truly believe the commentaries we read affirms all of the issues within certain circles of evangelical Christianity. And... Many people don't know what grace is or its purpose, or many people don't know what faith is, not only by dictionary definition or biblical definition. And that's a tragedy, truly, because there's a lot of responsibilities and duties that comes with being a Christian. Just look at the first definition of faith in the dictionary. It says allegiance to duty. So what does that mean? It means we have responsibilities as a Christian. It's a commitment. Faith is a commitment to Christ. How many people do you think, if asked what faith would was, would respond with the, the seven aspects of faith according to the dictionary in the Bible, which is allegiance to duty, fidelity of one's promises, sincere intentions, 
trust, conviction, action, and obedience. That's what faith is. And how many people do you think if they ask, if you ask them what grace was or what its purpose was, would respond with the definition, which is unmerited divine assistance offered to human beings for their regeneration and sanctification? Or, this is also, that's the dictionary, this is the Bible, to bring about the obedience of faith. That's the purpose of grace, but that's not the only purpose. The other purpose of grace is to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And ungodliness, if you want to know, according to the writings of the apostle that Jesus loved, which was John, he says, no one who abides in his love practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness, or depending on the translation, sin is transgression of the law. So if if you if Christ truly abides in you, you don't sin anymore. And people might say, well, I can't be perfect. Well, it depends. Are you talking about perfect thoughts and perfect heart? Or you mean perfect behavior? Because you can absolutely have perfect behavior regarding the New Testament and the Ten Commandments. That's possible. Now, can you ever get rid of the thought to sin? Can you ever get rid of temptation? Can you, you ever get rid of sinful urges no you can't get rid of the urges that's what it means to carry your cross is to struggle against sin but you can absolutely perfect your behavior which is what we're called to do it's our behavior in our speech that we need to perfect and we carry our cross by our capacity to have a sinful nature which doesn't really go away until we're resurrected and fully reborn and our flesh that old flesh goes away forever but that's again that's not the only purpose of grace. The other purpose that Paul talks about, and this is from Titus, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it's discipline. The purpose of grace is to attain spiritual discipline, which is a process, right? And he also, Paul goes on to say in Titus, the purpose of grace is to redeem us from all lawlessness, right? That's to redeem us from sin. So that's to stop doing it. It doesn't mean we're automatically redeemed by a profession, no, 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 no. That's now you have to start the process of justification and sanctification, which is to turn away from sin. The Orthodox um, Christians call it theosis. Theosis is becoming like Jesus. So that's what they say. The process of justification and sanctification is theosis, where we pursue what it means to be like Jesus Christ. And the last thing Paul talks about in Titus, which the purpose of grace is to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So it's for purification. The process of becoming holy is and turning away from sin and lawlessness is to become pure. Because we want to give ourselves on the day of judgment for the great banquet and the wedding feast, the bride of Christ, we want to present them spotless and blameless, not full of sin and pathology. And we have to be zealous for good works. And we don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we're saved. It's a reflection of who our Lord is. So, folks, if there's any three takeaways from this, maybe four, let's say four, let's say five, forgive me here, there's more information coming to me. So, five things to remember, number one, we have to love God first with all our heart, mind, and soul. Number two, love others as we love ourselves in the Christian context to urge others towards Christ and the pursuit of holiness and Righteousness, not to feel good about other people. Positive emotion is not love, okay? It's not what that means. And you know that because the suffering on the cross and the fruits of the Spirit, which is often taken out of context. And we'll talk about that. Let's, let's keep pushing through these five. Number three, to carry your cross and struggle against sin. That's another takeaway. And then the fourth takeaway, to memorize the definition and purpose of grace. And then number five, to memorize the purpose 
and all the definitions of faith. And that's the meat and potatoes of what we need to do. Those five things, that's what it means to follow Christ. It's deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It's a path of difficulty. It's not easy walking the path Christ did, but we're called to. And regarding the whole love, positive emotion, and the fruits of the Spirit, I don't want to hear anybody... The, we'll, we'll tackle the fruits of the Spirit when we get there. I think it's in Galatians. But don't take it out of context. Did Christ have joy on the cross? Did he have joy when he was being scourged at the pillar? Did he have peace in the immediate context, not the peace of the end promise that the end goal he was pursuing? He had peace knowing what he had to get done, but he didn't feel peaceful when he was getting spit on, getting mocked, and the crown of thorns getting lodged into his skull. All right? So we can't take these things out of context because there are people who are suffering, and they've got challenges, and they've got struggles, and the joy that we hold on to and the peace that we hold on to, the peace of Christ is in his promise, right? And if we live a life of faith, his grace is sufficient. That's what that the peace and joy is in. It doesn't mean we have to have joy in the midst of of condemnation, let's say, right? If we're being persecuted, God forbid, if it gets to the point where we're persecuted as Christians, that's, you can't have joy when you're getting beaten with a cudgel. There's no happiness when you're getting beaten with a cudgel in a working camp. It just doesn't work that way. So let's not take things out of context. And let's leave out the false pathological prosperity gospel and the narcissistic gospel that's a falsehood and let's love God first with our heart, mind, and soul understand what grace is, not abuse it and understand what faith is and get out and do it I hope everyone has a great day fight the good fight God bless